Hello, and welcome to the Coral Catalog Podcast. Thanks so much for listening in. I hope that through this podcast, you can find choral repertoire that works for your high school and or middle school choruses. This is episode 18, and I'll be talking to Susan Labar about her composition, Hold Fast to Dreams, which is available for SATB and SSA. Susan Labar is a composer and choral editor. Her compositions are published by Walton, Morningstar, and Santa Barbara Music Publishing. She has completed commissions for choirs worldwide, but most notably, Seraphic Fire, New York Polyphony, ACDA, and the Texas Choral Directors Association. Susan, her husband Cameron, and their son Elliot reside in Springfield, Missouri, where Cameron is the Director of Choral Activities at Missouri State University, and Susan works as editor of Walton Music. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Susan Labar about Hold Fast to Dreams. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Choral Catalog Podcast. My name is Matthew Van Dyke, and I am the host. I am so excited today to talk to Susan Labar. She is a composer and editor of Walton Music. Thank you so much for joining us, Susan. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this awesome podcast where you're really putting um, some great composers on, you know, highlight, which is just something we all need to to hear about these days. Absolutely. And personally, I love talking to composers, but I think that there are specific works that either need to be known or I want to know more about, and I hope that the listeners do too. Um, so today we're going to talk uh, to Susan about her Hold Fast to Dreams composition. Um, I believe that this is in two different voicings. It's SATB and SSA. Is that correct? That is correct. The SATB version came first and then SSA came next um, at request of another conductor. Awesome. Great. So we'll dive into the, those two. I have the SATB arrangement, but um, but I also have the SSAA pulled up as well, just so we can kind of reference. Um, but uh, before we start jumping into your composition, I'm going to take you down a very different road just to get to know you a little bit. Um, as we shared before we pressed record, I'm always more willing to program a composer if I know just a little bit more about them. So, uh, so I'm going to take you down a wacky road. So I'm going to ask you some would you rather questions. Uh, oh, I love this. Okay. Great. Awesome. Uh, so the first one is, would you rather eat at the same restaurant for the rest of your life or would you always have to eat somewhere new? Oh, gosh. I love food. Like, that is my thing. Um, I, I think I would pick always have to eat somewhere new. Is there a specific kind of food that you that you just love? I absolutely love, like, locally farmed, you know, highly seasonal, um, just really chef crafted, you know, unique, perfect food. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> perfect food. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, I got one more. I got two more for you. Would you rather lose all of your money and valuables or lose all the pictures that you've ever taken? Pictures. Because I have those memories in my head. And I honestly, I'm not super connected to like, um, my devices. And so I try when I'm in a really meaningful situation, I really do try not to take pictures and it drives my, um, you know, the grandparents crazy sometimes, but <laughs> I have to be like, Oh yeah, I should take a picture of things. Cause I think, um, when I experience something fully, that memory sticks with me way more than a picture. Yeah, I, I totally understand. And I think with at least with me and the iPhone, we have the photo sharing that can go between the grandparents and the and whatnot. And mm -hmm. they always are asking, I need more pictures. I need more pictures. Yeah, exactly. I want to feel more connected. Uh, <laughs> all right. One more. Uh, would you always or would you rather always know the time of the day or never need to use a GPS? I feel like I could do OK without a GPS. So I think I could, I could make that work through a combination of just like the, the skill of direction I somehow got from my father and, um, asking people if I need help. So, Excellent. Yeah. 
Awesome. <laughs> I think I think that all goes. It, you you can you can uh, boast about your directional skills until you have to like play survival mode. You know, until you have to be like bear grills. Right. <laughs> you get really lost. You'd be like, no, no, I need, I know where I am. I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. Uh, all right. Well, I appreciate you letting me take you down that kind of wacky road. Um, so let's uh, let's kind of pivot and let's get to know you a little bit more, a, a little more about you in your musical side. So um, so who is another choral composer who you are influenced by? That one is very easy for me. Um, one of my biggest influences, mentors, um, I don't know, role model goals person is Alice Parker. I was so fortunate to get to study with her twice at her workshops that she held at her home in Massachusetts. And that was really early on in my compositional journey. So I had written a few things and had a few things published by that point, but not too many. And all of that kind of had happened just really by chance and, and with luck. And it wasn't really until I studied with Alice that I learned actual technique. And I realized, oh, there is this beautiful um, intersection of natural skill and technique that any of the best composers out there um, have that intersection. And so I look at the, the pieces that I wrote before that time. And while there's so much that I'm proud of, I, I see my definite lack of technique in my composing. And when I look at things I wrote after that time, there's just so much more richness. And so I think what she did um, in her own music is really inspirational, but she also was like the person who showed me whether or not she realized it at the time that I could have this career and also have a family. She had five children while she was living in Manhattan and her husband was touring as a singer and she was writing music with Robert Shaw and she did that. And I remember hearing that from her for the first time and thinking, I can be a mother too and have this career and write music and it'll all work out. And I only have one kid, so it's a lot easier than five kids in Manhattan, but um, she just, yeah, musically and just as a person, she is such a huge influence in my life. And I don't know where I'd be had I not met her and studied with her. That's so wonderful. I, that That's such a phenomenal opportunity that you had to study with her twi twice. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 every every time you know she, she's just so synonymous with with all of all, all coral everything and whatnot. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that's that's so fantastic. Um, all right, let's uh, let's do just one more, and then we'll dive into hold fast to dreams. Um, so this is this is an impossible question, um, but uh, what is one piece of coral music that you just can't live without? What's your desert island piece of coral music? Well. You know, in my day-to-day -day life, I think because I write choral music and I work with choral music every day. So when I'm not working or writing, I, a lot of times I'm not listening to choral music, but this past year and a half um, with the pandemic, if it's taught me one thing, it's that I can't, there might not be a single piece I can't live without, but I certainly don't think that I can live without choral singing itself. So I think um, it's just made me more grateful for our art, you know, to go through this time with when we haven't been able to sing together. But if I had to, I was really thinking about in my in my memory and my history, what is a piece that has been really impactful or transformational for me? And the one I kept going back to was the Craig Hella Johnson arrangement of Hard Times. And my choir sang that in college and I got to sing the solo for that piece. There's a recording of it somewhere buried in YouTube somewhere um, that you can listen to. But um, that was one of the first times that I heard a piece of music that kind of married my love for folk song with modern choral music because the things that he does to create the soundscapes of that piece were just like oh my gosh I could do I could maybe do something like this and I actually have a song called fly it's an arrangement of another um, person's song and that fly I, I arranged 
shortly after I had sung that arrangement of hard times. And so it kind of opened up my eyes and ears to like these new possibilities in what the voice could do. And then the words are so incredible and the experiences I had singing that song are, they'll stay with me forever. So that's probably the one I go back to a lot. Awesome. Excellent. Love that. I, I, I don't know that piece or I don't oh, know that arrangement. So now I've got to go look that up. It's, it is so awesome. Awesome. Very You'll cool. Love it. <laughs> um, all right. So let's pivot a little bit and let's talk about hold fast to dreams. And now a snippet of hold fast to dreams by Susan Labar performed by the MSU youth chorale directed by Kyle Zoik. So uh, as we uh, spoke about in the beginning of the of the interview, uh, there are two voicings of this. There's an SATB arrangement, and then there's an SSA arrangement. So um, so Susan, when was this piece written, and uh, was this a commission? Um, how did and we, I guess you can kind of talk about the SATB version first, and then the SSA version. Um, however, you want to kind of break that down for us. But when was it written, and was it a commission? Yeah, so I want to say that this piece was written, I think the copyright date is 2013. So it was written either in 2012, 2013, which as I mentioned was just after I first studied with Alice Parker at her composer's workshop. And this was a commission. And the fun thing about it, it, it was written for the 35th anniversary of the St. Louis Children's Choir is for their mixed choir group. So it was mostly high school age, maybe like upper middle school, lower high school kind of age um, singers. And at the time it was conducted by my former high school choir director. And he, um, I went to high school in Springfield, Missouri, and that's where my director, Jonathan Owen was. But then he moved to St. Louis um, after I graduated at some point and started working at a different high school there and then took up this post um, for a few years with the St. Louis Children's Choir. And to celebrate that 35th anniversary, the I think all the choirs that are a part of that organization each commissioned a new piece. And so Jonathan Owen chose me, which I'm so, so grateful for. He was kind of a, a conductor who took, I guess he was the first conductor to commission me to write an original piece of music. And that was before Hold Faster Dreams. That was a few years before that for his choir um, at his high school. And he had some poetry that he had written to his wife when they were young. And um, he asked me to set that to music. So he really took a chance on that. I had never written anything for a choir that was any sort of original piece of music. And so 
he um, definitely was integral in my my compositional journey. And then, yes, asked me to write this piece for his choir. And it was to be performed at a big concert hall. I am not a St. Louis person, so I cannot remember the name of the hall, but, um, you know, in a really wonderful space. And it was going to be a big celebration. And so we talked about, you know, we wanted something that would really speak to that moment and that would also fit his choir really well. So that's where this piece came about. And then several years later, I'm not exactly sure how much later, but I mean, maybe five years later, I believe it was Judith Harrington. Um, she contacted me to create the SSA version for um, an ACDA performance. Um, and I should have looked that up to find out exactly which one it was, but it's probably written in the music. So that was really cool to get to transfer this to um SSA voices and give those young singers, those young trouble singers, this like really rich and amazing text to hopefully like, you know, imprint on their souls <laughs> through this music. Um, so I think it's, it's been a really wonderful project to see come to fruition. Very cool. So when you did that initial SATB arrangement or uh, uh, voicing and whatnot, um, what were uh, the, when Jonathan kind of gave you the commission and whatnot, what were the parameters that he was looking for? And what, you know, how did you use those parameters to kind of mold what we see today? Yeah, one of the things I remember him saying was at the time, that mixed choir just happened to be in a year of maybe some rebuilding or just had quite a few younger singers. And so he really wanted to make sure that this piece was something that suited them really well, that they could like really sing beautifully and feel really confident on. So I remember really clearly talking about the ranges of the voices that he had at the time. And, you know, there was a certain concern for not going too low for the low voices and not going too high or staying too high for the higher voices, but to definitely, they were definitely capable singers who had beautiful voices, but that they were just a little younger. So maybe the sopranos couldn't sing quite as high that year as maybe some years they could. So I remember loving the puzzle of that as well, of figuring out what key really suited this and just how to get that richness and the drama out of the melody without it going too high or too low. And to me, I've always done better in projects where I've had parameters. Um, there's a musical theater group um, that I've gotten to work with uh, through my work at Welton and GIA on editing one of their books. And they talk about how boundaries are freeing and that once you accept the boundaries of whatever your project might be, you can just do whatever you want within those boundaries, which sounds kind of maybe crazy, but I really work well that way. So I enjoyed putting the puzzle pieces together here and I always enjoy a piece that is just really so well suited to the group, whether it's through its text or its notes, um, when you can just tell that the thing you've created speaks so well to them and that they find meaning in it. So I, I felt like to try to fill those little, the holes and like fix the puzzle all together was really, really fun with this piece. That's so cool. I, I think it just begs to be said again, you know, in this time of 2021, when we're all in different school scenarios and we're all in different, all of our choirs are coming back together, maybe during this time period, uh, you never know, you, you know, you're coming into singers that you might not have, that are starting for the first time, maybe, or for 18 months, they haven't sang that this is, this is a great piece for a rebuilding aspect. You know, that's what that's what Jonathan wanted. That's what you said that you kind of based around that parameter. And so this is, I think that just, for me, it just begs to be said again, um, because I think so many of us are in that situation right now where we're teaching, you know, how do you, how do you sing a legato line? And how do you, you know, the breath support that that takes and the literacy that this takes. And so this, I think that's just on a personal anecdote that I just wanted to kind of uh, point out. Um, well, while it, uh I'll throw in there too is that um, a thing I tell the composers I work with at Walton a lot is that simplicity doesn't mean that it's not sophisticated. And if you, if a composer can write, and I'm not saying that I claim to be this composer, but 
any composer who can write within the parameters of three or four voices without adding anything else in and create something that's so rich and meaningful and every note is purposeful, that is sophistication. It's that idea of, you know, you maybe have in cooking, you have four ingredients to work with. What can you do with those four ingredients and really know exactly how to use each of those ingredients to get the best flavor out of whatever you're cooking? It's the same with music. You know, when you're using fewer notes, there's not a lot of place to hide. So you have to know exactly what you're doing and do it with intent and with purpose. And that's something, if you look at my first piece ever that was published, it's like eight parts, acapella, does everything you want that you think you want it to do. It's like, let me put every note on the page and do whatever I want. And <laughs> somehow it kind of works. But um, now I look at the stuff I'm putting out and it's like, I try as much as possible. Never, if I'm writing a work for SATB, I try as much as possible never to add another extra note in and just have it in those four parts. Occasionally you have a chord, you just really want that other note in. Um, and I write music, obviously that's really tonal and melodic. And so it's different than what some other composers are doing, but for what I do, I just try to live within those, that simplicity and not try to force the music to be something that it's not. I absolutely love what you just said. It's <laughs> yeah, it, it's so very clear in as this piece. I mean, that we're focusing on today, that it was so purposeful about exactly what you're at, you know, what you wanted and, and, and what you, you know, wanted to say. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I just love so much about what you just said. Um, all right. One more thing about kind of the, the conception of it a little bit, and then we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into the musical aspects. So <laughs> when did you become familiar with this text and what interested you about setting it? Was it something that Jonathan wanted this text or was it something that you just, you, discovered upon or happened upon or knew about and thought it would work? How did, how did you kind of come to this text? To my knowledge, there was no suggested text or even suggested topic. The only information was that this was a celebration of the choir. And so there I am with no boundaries thinking, how in the world do I even start to begin to look for a text for this piece? And I'm not a poet, so I don't write my own text. So I'm always looking for new texts that are out there. So um, at the time, so this was what, almost 10 years ago now, I guess, right? Okay, yeah. So at the time I'm, I'd heard of Langston Hughes, you know, I knew he was a poet and I, but I really hadn't read much of his work. Um, but I started looking for poets at the time. And the place I started was, okay, how about a Missouri connection? Who are some Missouri poets, either present or past? And so I pulled up a list somewhere. And of course we claim Sarah Teasdale um, here in Missouri along with others, but Langston Hughes is one of ours as well. He was born in Joplin, Missouri and didn't live in Missouri for a long time, but he always, according to what I've read, he, he always um, was proud of his Missouri heritage. And a lot of his poetry came from the challenges that he faced um, during that time um, growing up in Missouri and other places. So uh, I kind of clicked on his name. This is my process for finding text a lot is I'll do a Google search first and maybe read a couple poems by a poet. And then once I find somebody whose voice I resonate with, I'll usually order one of their books. So that's what happened here. And then when I got the book, I started flipping through and a lot of his work is clearly not for me to set. It is from his point of view as a black man and would not make sense for me to set. Um, but this particular poem is such a universal, beautiful message that anyone needs to hear. And when I thought of these young singers and of Langston Hughes connection to Missouri and them being in St. Louis, it just felt like such a beautiful pairing. And 
So I was really drawn to this text and, and I didn't know it before that. I mean, I'm kind of ashamed to admit that, that I hadn't heard this text before. Um, but I know at the time there were only a couple of choral settings that I knew of that were kind of out in the mainstream world. So I thought, you know, there not too many people have done this yet. So it feels like a, a new sort of thought in, in setting it to choral music. So, okay, I'll go for it. And I still over the years have, have been a little conflicted. Like, should I have said that? Should I have not? I've talked to a lot of my black friends and colleagues and they've um, assured me, at least the, the people I've talked to have assured me like, this is a text for everyone. That's great. That's wonderful. I, I, I love that you have that connection with, with the Missouri roots and whatnot. And um, I think it's, uh, you, you said it, perfectly that it's such a universal text and it is so celebratory to take it's a, it's such like a carpe diem almost you know mm, kind yeah. of text a little bit uh, i personally programmed this the first year that i was at my school and i did it for graduation so oh, um okay. yeah so i i it, it resonated with me and i and i it clearly resonated with my students because they were very excited to um you know to to use those words to send off a little bit um and and provide just a little bit of wisdom i think uh and so yeah i i i love everything you said about the text itself and uh and i'm glad that that we could we could build up those you know those those writers that you know maybe are not being performed as often or whatnot um so let's pivot a little bit and now now let's go directly into the music let's kind of just jump in um so uh the questions that i have for you kind of come from a director looking at this piece or the rehearsal strategy in this piece uh, you know and how it could work for their for their singers so um if i were to look at this piece and i and think to myself could this fit in my concert could this fit in my curriculum could this fit in my sequencing what musical concepts does this piece teach really well um, because i think that we program as conductors not just oh this sounds good or i need a fast piece or a slow piece i i hope that's not how our conductors are doing it um, but rather that I need to teach my students legato. I need to teach my students phrasing. You know, I, they're, they're, they, what piece could teach that in a way that's not me just speaking at them or whatnot. Um, so what, what does this piece teach really well in your opinion? The thing I hear a lot um, about this piece is that the melody really teaches the concept of line and the flow of a line and um, singing through the line and the phrase. And so I love that. I think that especially um, the line that gets to the life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. It goes, it soars high up above and it's a kind of a long line. So there's a lot of breath needed um, to get through that for young singers. So I definitely think the concept of line and the flow of the line and the phrase is really important in this piece. Um, I think also, so learning with Alice Parker, she before I studied with her, she, I would hear at like college, you know, this really scary word counterpoint. And I would think counterpoint. No, 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 no. That's not for me. That's Bach. That is too hard and scary. I'm not going to do that. But then studying with Alice, she really explains it in a way that counterpoint is just an answer to the melody. So it's, it's having a conversation, the melody and the second answering voice. And so I think that this is a really great um, introduction to counterpoint and to approach that with singers in a way that's not just Bach. I mean, Bach and what Bach did with counterpoint obviously is amazing. So <laughs> that aside, to make it not scary for people, you know, to look at the page, um, if anyone has the score, it's on page five where it begins, where the, the main theme of the song comes back and there's an answer in the lower voices. So the upper voices sing, hold fast to dreams and the lower voices sing, hold fast to dreams. Just kind of taking some of those notes out of what's used in the melody, but kind of flipping it around and just being a natural answer to that melodic line. And so I think this is a, a really great little passage to show young singers or anyone what counterpoint is and it's not scary. <laughs> so, 
So those are, I think, the the biggest things for me. Um, compositionally, you know, if I were to show this, so this is not so much a lesson to the singer, but a lesson to a composer. Um, I don't I don't put the choir into four parts until the kind of bridge section, the B section in this. And so it's kind of this example of like, let's introduce the melody, let's do a little counterpoint, and then let's have great impact once the choir finally sings in homophonic four-part voices. When a piece is just in homophonic four-part chordal, this and that, you know, throughout the whole piece, it's kind of like none of it really has that much of an impact. But if you can vary the texture, it's something that I tell to composers who submit music to Walton a lot. It's, you know, you just need more texture variance here. It's going to just make the piece so much more interesting. And when you finally get to that point where everyone's singing together, it will have so much more impact. This is a really general statement too. Like, obviously there are songs that composers write where they want it to be four parts the whole time and that's what it's meant to be or you want it to be even more simple the whole time you know this is just kind of a, a gen general thought for like this sort of music just to vary that texture really adds interest and you can look at it when you just look at the page you know without singing or even looking at it musically at all you can see that white space in the page and the variance of the rhythms and just know that maybe something interesting could be happening yeah, I, I'm such a um, proponent of uh, unison first. Um, mm -hmm. I think that, and that is, I think some disagree, you know, based on their, you know, what they're looking for or their, or their, I don't know, you could say ability of the mm -hmm. musical, but I, I don't know, I, you, you can go in a couple of different ways, but I think for me, what's most important about unison first is that the choir gets to sing together, that they mm -hmm. understand they can build a sound because if you throw them into Divisi right away, they they haven't found the sound yet. They're they're asking you're asking them to do a you know something that might be higher on the musical hierarchy that is it's not establishing foundation. And I think that that is initially what drew me to this piece is that you know I I I always look for that because I want my singers to feel like they can grip they can actually put the seatbelt into into the the latch and go and, and instead of all right let's all put the seatbelt in together and we'll hope what happens you know yeah. here's the pitch go <laughs> um, right so i think that that's and especially i think what you've been alluding to and saying in that this age group you know this higher middle school lower high school you know maybe transitioning from sab into satb mm -hmm. that's why i picked this one because i i had six guys at the time um and my sopranos and altos could hang on to their harmony pretty decently but my guys were still struggling a little bit um but the tenor and the bass part is is not a the melodic um pitch set is not complicated it's very it's very straightforward and that's no way me trying to you know diminish the the piece by any means it's just the function of it and what i and what i needed it for so i'm 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 glad that you talked about all of those things and starting unison that, that Texture variant. I've never heard that term before, but now I'm going to use it all the time. So texture variance. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and um, when when the tenors and basses do split off of the sopranos and altos in this piece, what they are singing is not harmonic content. It's they still have a melodic line, and it's their own line. And so it's I think they have their own identity in that moment, where it's not like they're just singing singing a third down or a sixth down or whatever it might be. Um, so I think it's a good way to build confidence in singing in separate parts as well, to sing that way rather than just like a harmony note, you know, a third above in the same rhythm. So it, it's definitely a different way to learn that confidence. Um, but I think a good place to start in that for sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all right, let's, let's kind of keep trucking. Um, so if I pick this piece for my ensemble, um, where do I start? You know, what is, what's the hook of this piece? You know, where, what's going to kind of get our singers who have, you know, instant gratification in their hands all the time, you know, what's, what's going to hook them on this piece? So where do you start? I mean, I am not a teacher, so I'm not going to claim that, but I've been around a lot of teachers and I've been in a lot of rehearsals. So I'll just speak from that point of view. <laughs> um, 
But I think that I would probably suggest starting with everyone in the room singing the melody together, um, at least for the first section. So through that first kind of verse, the, the form of the song is kind of like A, A, B, A. So singing that A section, everyone in unison all together, just so that everyone knows what the melody is. I've been in lots of rehearsals in my past where I'll sing a song for an entire year as an alto and never actually know what the melody is. And then later maybe hear a recording of my group singing it. And I'm like, huh, I never knew that's what the Sopranos were doing over there <laughs> because focus on what I am doing and what I'm hearing right around me. And so I think to start out with everyone understanding what the melody line is, is just so crucial in this type of music. So in any sort of like tonal, melodic focused folk song kind of stuff, that that's just going to be the foundation to build everything off of. So, you know, when those tenors and basses split off or when everyone goes into four parts, they can sense where they fit in into the chord and the melody. So that's where I would definitely start. Um, I think I would start there with music um, and probably start with words too. With this age group, I think they can probably do it. So start with the, the melody and the words, and then maybe go, once the melody is sung through a couple of times, maybe go through just the text, speaking it together, talking about what it means, just right off the bat. Again, I've been in rehearsals in my past where we never really talk about the text and I never really know what a piece means, or I never take the time to understand what it means to me. And so I think it's important, especially with this text, um, to spend time in a rehearsal together, reflecting on what that text actually means to the individual. And then from there, yeah, go on to that counterpoint section um, and understanding the, the answer to the melody. Um, some choirs, you know, struggle with the syncopated rhythms or maybe not struggle, but that's where the challenge might be is those syncopated rhythms in that B section. And so um, speaking those through, singing them through, um, to just to get that feel, that relaxed kind of syncopated feel, I think is important as well. Awesome. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that syncopated stuff in the next question. Um, I think you uh, in your um, in your response about where to start. I see that on page ten. Um, this is that this is after the the chordal homophony stuff that the melody comes back but it's in octaves um that i think this that's that's that i think what you were saying in the beginning but giving those tenors and basses the opportunity to do that too um that's probably a i think a great place to start too and it's also if you were to keep going there which again you don't have to go chronologically through the piece by any means but this is also a lower harmony that's that's um harmonized from the original melody as opposed to that b section being a different higher am i, I hope i'm making sense susan like yep, you are <laughs> um so so i i think that's i think that's kind of where i started um is that i started at measure 68 with the tempo one um and i kind of then i went back to this then i went back to the counterpoint then i actually came back to page 10 um because it mm -hmm. gave them that that melody that they could um you know flux on um mm -hmm. and understand how that worked and how it's different you know how oh the first one we did it it was, it was all of us singing together the second time we did it, we just built one on it now the third time we did it we're going to build mm -hmm. and then i would go back to the b and then so uh i think it's i think it this this piece teaches a lot of those it allows you to developmentally um build without it being overwhelming um mm -hmm. as opposed to just jumping right into all right, now we're in the unison. Now we're in the counterpoint. Now we're in this totally new melody, but now we're being asked yeah. to do four parts. Um, so uh, that's, I think that's the direction that I think I went. Um, and I think that I would recommend to, to anyone who's doing this piece too. Um, I also love that this, this piece has a lot of the dotted quarter note eighth figure. Um, and I think that I don't want to generalize and say that this age group struggles with that. I think all singers <laughs> struggle with that. Uh, I think that um, I don't know. I don't know what it is, uh, and I and I don't. I, I don't want to like cast a pall on all singers and with the with the finger wag or anything like that. But I think sometimes like we 
we struggle in that rhythmic pattern and there's so much of that in here uh that's not that they get to sing it in unison or they get mm -hmm. to sing it that they're not being asked to do this brand new musical idea but now we have some dotted quarter note eighth figures and and uh so I, I that's what i really enjoyed about that piece that it's um it's attainable and it's and it's slightly no i don't want to say predictable but it's but it's accessible to understand mm -hmm based on the article of the of the words you know hold fast two dreams you wouldn't say hold fast two dreams so that gives mm -hmm. them the ability to be like oh that's i'm when i speak that i speak that slower so it's go, or i speak that faster rather excuse me so the longer note is going to so they're 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 getting that not object permanence is the wrong word the rhythmic permanence <laughs> you know temporal permanence <laughs> yeah um, you know it's thinking of that like dotted quarter and eighth note thing. I know exactly what you mean. Like I remember drilling stuff like that in college and um, even as college, you know, good singers, we couldn't do it. And what I think, I really do think the problem is like, okay, I'm holding up the, the music, the sheet music, because this is a podcast, so you can't see me. But <laughs> um, what I think the problem is, is this, like we look at this page and we think that's the music right there. And so I will bury my head in it. That is the music, but the music is not this page. The music is what we do with the stuff on this page. And so like, if you were in a room and you sang that passage to someone who wasn't looking at the music, they would sing it back perfectly. But if they're looking at the page and trying to analyze and like do everything perfectly, it's not music. So <laughs> it's a weird thing, but that when I did set this text, that's for sure what I thought of and how I always approach setting a new text to a melody is what is the natural rhythm that I speak when I say these words. So I don't say hold fast to dreams. Like, yeah, I could have written three quarter notes instead, but nobody says it that way. So it would sound strange and probably wouldn't be able to be understood by a listener. And so how do we actually say it? Hold fast to dreams. Like that's how I say it. I mean, I think that's how most of us would say it. So that's how it should be notated in this type of music. Again, there are definitely types of music, which I wish I could write, where you do everything crazy and like wrong syllables and, and crazy rhythms. You know, I love singing music like that. I just have accepted that that's not the music I can write. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, I would almost even say, don't even give, don't even let your singers open the the sheet music. Just sing and have them, you know, have them echo what you sing, go line by line, and then have them look at the page. It's how we learn language too. You know, you learn by hearing people speak first and you start to understand what they're saying. And then eventually you, you talk back. And then only after that, well, after that point, you know, when you're in kindergarten or maybe if you're advanced before that, um, but it's it's years later that you look at a page and see what those words look like. So if we maybe spent a little time just kind of echoing back a melody, then the page becomes less scary and less concrete. Yeah, definitely. There was a there was an activity that I saw another teacher do with this piece that they wrote the words on the board and they had the students just write long and short above it. It wasn't mm -hmm. even it wasn't mm -hmm. even you know quarter notes and eighth notes or anything like that. It was just, you know, what note, what, what words are long and what are, what words are short. Uh, and then they, yeah. and then they, and then they transitioned into now let's, let's speak it this way, you know, and now let's let, now let's put some notes, you know, let's put some rhythmic things to it. And then, and now let's open the score and see if your idea is all right, is Susan's idea. And, and so, uh, that was just something so that I thought good. Was, Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I just thought I'd share that one. And, uh, so, um, the next question I, I kind of have, we're, we're, we're alluding to a little bit, we're kind of stepping into the door, but not necessarily going all the way through is, um, you know, every choir is different. I always say the same disclaimer in every episode that when I get to this question, you know, every choir is different. Every choir has their uh, idiosyncrasies. Every choir has their successes, has their pitfalls. Um, but in every piece that we encounter, there's always potentially something that trips that they fall into this pitfall. Um, and in your time doing this piece or clinicking this piece or, you know, uh, talking to conductors about this piece, um, what are some of those pitfalls that maybe we fall into? And what are some tips and tricks to, uh, for us to avoid it and not fall into the bear trap? <laughs> I love it. Um, I would say 
A big thing I usually notice is on page five where the tenors and basses finally get their moment to split off from the sopranos and altos. They are both marked as um, mezzo piano as the, the dynamic marking. And so I think some tenors and basses see that and they're like, I am important too. And so they sing that with gusto, which is absolutely where you want your singers to start. You know, you would rather have them there and bring them back a little. Um, but I think in any, in pretty much any song that is, is very melodic, um, you want that melody to always be the most important. So I, a lot of times will ask the tenors and basses, just bring it back just a little bit. Cause it's not, you think of it as a conversation. So if you're talking with someone, you might say, I like potatoes. And then the second person might be like, oh, I like potatoes too. You know, like, no, that's not how a conversation goes. I like potatoes. Oh, I mean, me too. You know, it's like just a little softer. So that's the idea there is like, it's this conversation of hold fast to dreams. Yeah. Hold fast to dreams where it's just, it's kind of like being reasonable with it is good. So that's, it's an easy fix. And, and it's, it's just something I notice a lot. Um, and then, yeah, that, that syncopated stuff um, in that B section. Um, again, though, it's, it's really, I hope it's set in a way that would naturally be spoken. So hold fast to dreams. Like you, you could say hold fast to dreams, but that's not how anyone would really say that. So it's really just natural. Hold fast to dreams for when dreams go, you know, that's, that's how I speak it. So I, I think that if you give this to a choir and ask them to open to that page and try to sing it, even adults, you know, will struggle there. And it's, I think, speaking those rhythms um, or singing the melody line there and having the choir um, echo what you do just by rote is really helpful in that instance. But singers, they get it there. They, they get it after a few times. It becomes really a fun section to sing, I think. So that's a good one. Um, and then on page 11, it's kind of one of the last times we say, um, life is a broken winged bird that cannot fly. And there's this kind of like, it starts all together and then it kind of like melts apart. And so to, to make that just really, it's on measure um, 82, if anyone's looking at the score. So to make that where those notes kind of melt apart just a really fluid and warm and soft you know not trying to punch anything just really letting it kind of melt out of each note before um, really gets a nice effect there but otherwise I mean I I hope it's a really singable piece I think it is and so like you said I mean I truly don't mind the word predictable especially in this song because I am always trying to do the most natural thing. I found when I try to think too hard and try to like put in a cool chord, just because I don't want it to be too boring, <laughs> the cool chord always sounds ridiculous. And so for this type of music, like being a little predictable, I think is a good thing. It's like just finding the music that is already there in the text and in the sentiment and just putting it down on the page is, is kind of what I hope to do. Awesome. Excellent. Um, that same teacher, uh, that I was talking about with the rhythmic stuff in the syncopation, she wrote the words on the board with the longs and the short, and they learned the solfege mm. from the board in the rhythm. Because I think like you were saying, you know, when you said podcast people, I'm holding up the score, this is the problem. <laughs> it, I think, visually it looks harder than it actually is orally so if you look at you know measure 47 and 48 they're just quarter notes so but they're over the bar line and they're tied together so it's so it looks harder than it actually is instead if you spoke life is a barren field that short long 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 that's it that's all it is so it looks visually more complicated because of our stupid notation system that we have to fall into <laughs> the past, I guess about the past three years, I've been fortunate to get to sing in the Missouri state university gospel choir. It's like a, um, students, but community members too, and led by Robert Gibson. And 
he's phenomenal. And we learn just in the gospel style, you know, everything by rote and never look at a piece of music. But there have been a couple of times where, for whatever reason, learned something by rote and then looked at that song on a page somewhere and been like, what? How would you ever read this music? It's like, there's just no good way to write it down. And I think that's true of a lot of the music I work with from South Africa as well, from some of those composers and currently an, a composer from Kenya too, where it's like, you look at the stuff on the page and it's like, oh my gosh, how are we ever going to learn those rhythms? But then you hear someone just sing it and it's like, oh, okay, that's easy actually. So it's just such an interesting, we have to have a way to communicate these things. Um, so we have to have that musical notation, but then it's, you know, sometimes causes more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> I think we need to go back to part books. I think we just need to throw it all <laughs> right. away. Part books. <laughs> I'm going to petition for part books. <laughs> that will be really good for the publisher. Publishing industry. <laughs> I think for the publishers, they're going to make more money because they have, they have to do totally a part new. book for this. <laughs> and <a> part... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not a bad idea. <laughs> um, yeah, that's I, I totally, totally get that. I think that there are times where it's just, you know, we sometimes I, I, I feel like we get frowned upon sometimes if we ha if we teach a section by rote, you know, like, but if it's easier, like, mm -hmm. yes, your singers are not looking at that page and figuring it out, quote unquote, for themselves. But isn't mm -hmm. the concept for us to keep the music going and then be able to have a teachable moment of now that's what it looks like as mm -hmm. opposed to struggling through it for the sake of you have to read put in the counts you know we could save yeah. time and I, I don't know sorry my sorry. my mom was a long time reading teacher she taught this program called reading recovery that taught um, struggling first grade readers, um, kind of like took them from where they were and brought them up to the level they should be at. And so she talked a lot about, well, so my son is seven years old now. And so he's been reading for a few years now. And when he started learning, he was kind of struggling to understand what was going on. And she taught him, taught me and taught him this technique of um, like in reading and writing, yes that's what it sounds like so what he would do he would be writing a little sentence and he would just sound out the words and like to give him the confidence to just sound out the words and just go for it it's oh yeah that's what it sounds like now look at what it looks like and then that's when you teach what it's actually spelled like because english is ridiculous and hard and that's kind of similar with music too and i've talked about it earlier too with like the the similarities between reading and literacy and then also with music literacy you know you can hear what it's i kind of think especially at an early level obviously if you're a professional singer you should probably know how to read rhythms and, and if you're in college and in a rhythmic dictation class or whatever you need to know rhythms and how that works but when you're a young singer starting out like here's what it sounds like now let's look at what it looks like and how effective is that as naturally how we learn things in in our society and in our life and it's a great way to teach music too sorry there's a lawnmower going by <laughs> oh no, I, I i don't think i hear it i don't but okay i hear uh, it big time <laughs> <laughs> uh well i mean I feel like I feel like we could just stop the podcast right there. You know, it's it, we we've gotten everything we needed. And, and no, but I'm just kidding. I think I think it's such like a uh, you know an important thing to realize as as a director that yes, we want our students to be musically literate and we want them to be independent musicians, but there is but but visually it's not the only way. And I think mm -hmm. and you know dare I kind of throw us back into this into your composition. This is a attainable way to do that you mm -hmm. know you don't have to give them something crazy and and whatnot for the sake of we need to learn this rhythmically you know we mm -hmm. could still have success moments in this and that and and so uh you know for those of you that are listening don't discount this piece because it looks simple there are lots of great things that you can teach in this piece that make it complex and and allow your students to succeed that's at the end of the day, I think what our job is, uh, you know, allowing our singers to succeed. Um, anyway, yeah, I would throw in too for any for groups of really any level, this piece or pieces like it of this kind of accessibility level, they are a great way to immediately begin to make music. So 
if you have a higher level, you know, high school group, um, it's, it's not a bad type of piece to put in front of that group to just get them to understand making music together right away. You know, they can have success and be so musical right away with something like this. And there's so many amazing pieces of this level that are out there in our, in our world. So I, I would say like, don't, yeah, sometimes I want to say to really great choirs, like, okay, just cause you can always do these really hard, amazing pieces. Like I'd love to hear you sing something really simple because it would be incredible to hear you and the music you could make on that. So I think there's a place, you know, for, for all of these things. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. Uh, all right. This is my last question about hold fast to dreams. Um, and again, it's an impossible one, but, uh, what is your favorite thing about this piece? What does, you know, it, that could be, I think, a, you know, I don't want to put ideas in your head by any means, but what, you know, you could have a particular part of it. There could be the reception to it. That could be the, the concept. I don't know. So what is your favorite thing about this piece? Mm, I don't, I, I'm like probably the last person to be like, the, the music I wrote is so amazing. Um, and I, I would certainly not do that for this piece. I, I do think that that syncopated section for young singers, they get into that. They love singing that because it's a little poppy, you know? And so I do love seeing when a choir, you know, middle schoolers just really gets into that section. You can tell when singers really feel something. And the biggest thing though, um, aside from the music is just that so many singers who sing this, they might not know this text in any other capacity. They might not know anything about Langston Hughes in any other capacity. And so for somehow this music to impart these words to young singers so that maybe when they're going through a tough time, they remember this song and remember these words and their sentiment. That is, that's the gift right there. That's what I hope. And I love to see when, you know, some singer says, Oh, I sang your piece and it really helped me just get through this hard time. That's, that's what I do it for. I think, um, so that's what I love about it is just somehow I, I feel so unworthy of this text. I really do. And had it been now and I tried to set it, I might not have done it um, because I think Langston Hughes is just such a tremendous force in our history. And so I, I feel, yeah, unworthy of it, but I'm glad that maybe some, some young people know of this text because of this song. That's really important to me. I love that. I love that. All right. So let's, uh, let's kind of start wrapping up our interview if that's okay. I can feel like I could talk to you for a long time. But, uh, <laughs> Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's kind of wrap up a little bit. Um, and these questions are, are, are kind of geared back at you, um, and kind of the future, uh, and whatnot. So what are, um, some exciting projects that are on the horizon for you? Is there any, are there any pieces that we should look out for? Are there any commissions that are coming down your, um, you know, on your Avenue that we should, that you're excited about what, what's in the future for you? Yeah, um, I have a few pieces that will be coming out um, in publication with Walton Music, um, either now-ish or um, in the spring. One of those is a piece I did for um, the University of Miami, Ohio uh, Men's Glee Club. And that's um, Jeremy Jones is the conductor of that amazing group. And he has started a series at Walton that's going to be um, at this point primarily tenor bass choir focused and so one of those the pieces is called the river and it's um a story it's a poet by a man named bill Carnes, and he is um actually a like a construction worker carpenter and but he kind of writes poetry on the side and we came we crossed paths at some point um in our in you know the past 10 years or so and i've had this text of his that i wanted to set and this commission came about from Jeremy and it was like, okay, this is the time. And so it's a text about a boy who grows up by a river and kind of what that means in his life, both literally and symbolically. And it's just a really wonderful text. And I was really struck by um, just the first time I read it probably eight years ago, <laughs> um, like this has to be a bluegrass song. And so it is like, 
full on bluegrass. Um, and so it's very much in that style, but it's for piano, um, but you can add guitar, you can add fiddle, you could add like a whole bluegrass combo to it. And it's a really, really fun piece. So that's coming out um, any day. It might be alpha press. So that's one to look out for. And then um, there's a piece that will also come out any day and it is called For This Joy. And the story behind this piece is really um, meaningful to me. Um, when my husband and I lived in Tennessee, we both sang in a church choir there at Broad Street United Methodist in Cleveland, Tennessee. And we got to know the choir members really well and they were really important in our lives. And so here it is um, seven years later. And last year, one of our friends in that choir passed away and his name is George. And George was a character and friendly and just loving and everybody loved, he lit up the room. He was also a clarinetist. And so he would always play the clarinet with the choir if we ever had a song that had a clarinet part. And so after he passed away, um, the choir director was going through his choir folder that was just there at the church. And she found a paper in the folder that he had planned out his entire funeral service. And on the service, he had said that he wanted me, Susan Lamar, to set um, the Lobodin Heron text, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, for the choir to sing at his funeral and that he'd left money in his estate to pay for the commission, which is just, I mean, it just absolutely blew my mind that someone not only thought about, oh, I want this song, but also like, I want to support this composer. That is just insane to me. And so I started thinking about that project and I was just not really connecting with the text of that hymn very well, just because I knew like a lot of people have said that before and it's kind of, you know, it's a great text, but it's just, it's been out there a lot. So what could, what could I do to make this new and fresh and really honor George? And so I got with the great Tony Silvestri and he wrote a new text. So he took the same meter of that hymn. And he wrote this beautiful new text that really celebrates the earth and life and joy and sorrow and um, all of the things that kind of life entails. So that's called For This Joy. And it's for SATB choir with um, piano and uh, clarinet of all things. And other than that, I'm, I'm doing a few new voicings of some pieces that are already out there. So I'm doing an SATB voicing of Where the Light Begins, which was originally written for SSA Voices. So that's for one of my friends, Stephen Rue here in Missouri. He's gonna use that for the Missouri Music Educators Conference. Um, and then doing an SSAA and TTBB version of um, We Remember Them, which was so beautifully recorded by the Aeolians um, a year or two ago. And so new songs, nothing on the horizon, but that's a little bit by design because work and child and family and life is a little busy. So I'm kind of, um, you know, waiting to take on some new projects right now, which is fine. I have enough going on. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I'm excited to, to start to see those things pop up. And, uh, and I hope that people sink their teeth into it and really, and really dig in them, yeah. uh, especially the bluegrass bluegrass stuff. I feel like it's just, yeah. it's just blowing up right now. Um, it is. And, I have always loved it always like my whole life. And so to get to write something for a choir, I'm, I, it was funny cause we sent it to, um, JW pepper just in our regular review and their editors were like, we just don't know what to do with this, but we love it. But like, what do you do with this and will people like this and i'm like i don't know but i like it so <laughs> awesome awesome all right uh last question i have for you today is um how can our listeners find out more about you if they're um i know you said that you're not kind of taking on new things at this present second but um if they were interested in kind of talking to you about your compositions that are already in publication or um, uh, just kind of chatting with you even the way that i just did today um how can they get in touch with you Yes. So I'm very weird and I do not have Facebook or Instagram or a website or anything like that on purpose because I needed to, you know, have some balance in my life. And that was a good way to achieve that. So the best place to find me is actually on waltonmusic.com. 
and you can read about the editor um, on that page and my web, uh, my uh, email address is there. So email is for sure the best way to find me and that's where my email address is and information about me and you can certainly get a hold of me there um, for any of my questions, you know, questions about my compositions or talking with your choir or even commissions. I'm not saying I never want to do commissions again. It's just kind of like right at this moment, things are nuts with the, you know, the publishing industry coming back after um, the pandemic. So it's just a little bit crazy right now, but yes, I certainly want to keep writing music. So that's always good. Um, but also if you have any questions about Walton stuff, you know, um, anything related to publication and pieces that we have at Walton or composers there. I'm always happy to help um, conductors with any of that great stuff. Awesome. Well, Susan, I, I just want to take an opportunity again to say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today and have our listeners get to know you a little bit more and, uh, and hold faster dreams a little bit more. I really hope that if they haven't looked at this piece or they haven't heard this piece yet that they take an opportunity to look at it um, because I think that it is just a wonderful piece of rep that teaches so many things and makes your it allows your chorus to to sing and really sound good um, and feel successful so again thank you so much for for talking to me today I so appreciate that well thank you for those incredibly kind words and thanks for having me this was really a blast and and thanks for what you're doing with this podcast it's awesome absolutely well i hope that our paths get to cross in in some time soon whether it's through another composition that that you know resonates and uh or or even just at a convention of some sort hopefully the world will start to be able to have those again and whatnot yeah. um but uh but again thank you so very much and i, I hope we can talk again soon absolutely thanks so much Thanks so much for listening to the Coral Catalog, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Susan Labar. Please make an effort to explore more of Hold Fast to Dreams and Susan's other compositions to see if any can fit into your programs or curriculums. While you're here, take a second to hit the subscribe button and follow the Coral Catalog so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Let me know what you thought of the show too by writing a review. And most importantly, share this resource with other choral directors and choral lovers. We work better when we work together. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Choral Catalog.